Welcome listeners to another episode of Serious Coin, the podcast where we have rich conversations about wealth. I'm your host, Kelly Willis-Green. Today, I'm really excited to be talking to someone who's been named one of the 25 most influential people in wealth management. He's a tax lawyer, author of three books, and one of the godfathers of private wealth in the US. He is Charles Lowenhaupt. Charles is chairman and partner of Lowenhaupt and Chasnoff, a law firm that was established by his grandfather in 1908 as the first law firm in the US to concentrate in tax law. He's also founder and director of Lowenhaupt Global Advisors Australia, a family office based in Sydney. And his first book, co-authored with Don Trone, is provocatively titled Freedom from Wealth. And it dispels the myth that coming into money actually buys you any freedom at all. And we're going to be talking about that today. It was such a treat for me to sit down with somebody who has spent the past five decades working with ultra high net worth families in just about every corner of the globe. And some of these families are now in their seventh and eighth generations of wealth. So if you're listening and you're new to wealth, or you're a professional advisor to the wealthy, this is an opportunity to learn from someone who has seen everything. Charles has worked with old money and new money, parents and grandparents, kids and grandkids, wealth creators and inheritors. And he's not afraid to share his views on what works and what doesn't for families who want to pass down their fortune in a meaningful and healthy way. I found Charles to be a charming raconteur and just so, so wise. In our conversation, he shares the telltale signs that your money may be owning you. He gives parenting advice for wealth creators and tells me the one thing that all families must do to avoid dysfunction around their wealth. I started by asking Charles to explain this concept of freedom from wealth. I was giving a lecture at a family wealth conference. My program was to start at two o'clock, but I went to lunch first and sat next to a woman whom I had not known, but she came from a very old, very wealthy and storied family in the U.S. I introduced myself. She introduced herself. She was an artist. Not only was she an artist, she served on an Ivy League faculty. She was awarded prizes for her work and very well regarded. I said, what's an artist doing at an institute on private wealth? She said, well, I'm here to learn about hedge funds. She said to me, what are you doing here? I said, I'm here to talk about freedom from wealth. Come to my talk at two o'clock and you'll hear about it. She said, I can't. I'm scheduled to go to a hedge fund program. Five minutes into my talk, the back door opened and she walked in. I said to her afterwards, what happened to the hedge fund? She said, I sat there for about two minutes thinking freedom from wealth, freedom from wealth. She said, I'm an artist. I don't need to know about hedge funds. I think they're boring. We have a family office. They can hire someone to learn about hedge funds. I've seen her often since, and often she has said to me how that changed her life. That, in fact, she realized that the purpose of her wealth was to allow her to pursue her art. And the purpose of the family office was to decide whether to purchase hedge funds. That, I think, is the best way to describe what freedom from wealth is. Her wealth was not there to burden her. It was to allow her to pursue her passion. 
where do you come across people who are really struggling with the burden of wealth? What does that look like? How does it manifest? It manifests itself with the person feeling he or she needs to devote time to the relatively uninteresting details of wealth management. But don't we all need to do that to an extent? It depends. If you have a single family office, its beauty is that it allows you to get on with life. Now, there are issues of auditing a single family office. And what most single family offices don't do, and in fact, this is why I wrote my first book with Don Trone, they don't develop principles of private wealth. The board of the family office or the family needs to figure out what principles it wants applied in the family office. Those principles can then actually be turned into standards and the family office can be audited. When the Madoff fiasco was uncovered, I was having breakfast in New York on the morning it appeared in the New York Times with a woman who ran a large family office. And I said to her, have you ever heard of Bernie Madoff? She said, yes, Bernie, why? And I said, have you seen this morning's paper? And I got one and showed it to her. And she said, my God, our whole investment program is with Uncle Bernie. And I said to her, really? And she said, yes, the family trusted him. And I said, well, you know, you don't trust people, you trust process. And you develop your process so that it can be audited. And once it's being audited, you've done all you can do. Madoff was all about people trusting. In fact, I've often had clients say to me, we trust you. And I said, well, that's lovely and I appreciate it. But you need to trust the processes that I'm helping you apply, not the individual. So what you see, Kelly, is a number of individuals who get terribly involved in trying to figure out what's going on with their wealth, how it's being managed. And of course, one of the challenges there is even if you're interested, as you get older, it gets harder and harder because you get less and less capable of handling details. So what we see are 80 and 90-year-old, primarily men, who are still trying to manage the details and who are really being made miserable and not doing a very good job of it. We had one client who was actually a stockbroker and who, as he got older and older, began to say he had no money left and it was driving him crazy. He just couldn't put together what he needed to put together to understand what he had left. After he died, he had 30 or $40 million, it turns out. He just couldn't comprehend it. Aging can also take away that freedom from wealth. I love that line, don't trust people, trust processes. That's great advice when it comes to oversight of, well, probably just about anything. And this whole concept of freedom from wealth is so interesting to me because, you know, one of the great ironies of coming into money is that, as Charles says, for many people, the very business of managing wealth becomes a burden. He told me he's seen plenty of situations where the money has come to own the person rather than the other way around. So he's curious to know more about the signs that someone's wealth has become self-defining or a burden. 
Well, it starts when they look at their net worth too often. How often is too often? Too often is probably once a week. It's certainly every day. (laughs) Not too often, maybe quarterly, and quarterly just to understand what's going on. I find that the best way to put matters in perspective is to start with what has to be the starting question. What is your wealth for? And when you ask that, I'm interested in the answers that you're given. And do many people just say, I don't know, I've never even thought about that? Most people say, well, I don't know. Right. In fact, a while ago, a fellow came into our office in New York. He'd invested in a friend's business 20 years earlier. I don't know how much he invested, but not a lot. And when he came in, he had over a billion dollars. And I said, why are you here? He said, I'm here to save taxes. I said, well, we can do that. We've been doing that for 100 years. But you've told me what you don't want your wealth for, taxes. What do you want it for? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, what's your wealth for? And he looked at me. He said, what are my choices? I laughed. But actually, that's a very good question. And the more we've worked with wealth holders, the more we conclude that although there are different strategies for this, if you're talking about multi-generational wealth, what it's for is to make sure that every person can be all he or she can be, can self-actualize, can live life to the fullest. And there are lots of ways people do that, But if wealth is going to have any purpose, it's got to be for that multi-generational wealth. This notion of self-actualization is, Charles, in your view, about making wealth meaningful through community. What do you mean by that? And how do you help your clients find that? I start by saying we work with seven generations. And there's not one of those families that could make itself functional around its wealth without tying itself in one way or another with community. Now, that can be what we call philanthropy. When I was working with some Hong Kong families, they kept saying, we don't talk about philanthropy. Don't even mention it to us. And I said, but what is it you're doing? You're going back to your homeland. You're building schools, roads, et cetera. What's that? And they say, oh, that's duty. I say, fine. Philanthropy, duty. I think of a South Indian family which has multiple generations in a family business and the family has a philanthropic foundation run by the women. They say if you want to be involved in the family business, you have to go back to the village we came from and spend a month every summer providing social services. That also is community. And that's done wonderful things for the culture of that family and for the family business. So how does a first-generation wealth creator who's got now the billion dollars you're referencing, how do you help them learn about how they will contribute to community? So many of these wealth creators say, I'm generation one. And I say, well, that's very interesting. Did you not have parents? (laughs) What did your parents do? And I ran into one of these fellows in Australia whose parents were Holocaust survivors who'd come to Australia. And this man 
had invested in mining or something and had loads and loads of wealth and kept talking about himself as Gen 1. And I said, well, tell me a bit about your father and mother. Turns out his father is a Holocaust survivor, moved to Australia, became a lawyer, and helped immigrants get naturalized. He didn't make much money, but why wasn't he the first generation? Mm -hmm. And what were his parents? You have to tie the wealth creator to community. And you do that through his or her parents and grandparents and the like. Then you talk a little bit about how many next generations can't put wealth in its place. How do you put wealth in its place? How do you figure out what it's for? How do you make sure that you're a model for your children and grandchildren to come placing wealth in its place? I often say to clients, have you put money in its place? Do you know where it belongs? Do you ever get people who say, look, I pay my taxes, I create employment and growth, I've made my money legitimately, that's my contribution to community? They'll usually take it further than that. If you're talking about substantial wealth, they'll say, we have a business that employs 10,000 people. I serve on various civic boards. But once they say that, they're already looking at how their wealth is engaged with community. Mm -hmm. And I like to talk to them about, well, you know, that's really admirable. And that will really help your children if you model that. So talk more about that and talk less about how much money you have. I also observe that some wealth creators start to think more about community and legacy in their 60s, 70s, and then they wonder why their 30 and 40-year-old kids aren't also more philanthropic. But some of it is, I think, just that stage of life that you start thinking about these things in a different way as you age. Any thoughts on that? I served on a panel a few years ago with an elderly and very philanthropic fellow who'd sold his business and was a major philanthropist in his community. He and I were on a panel talking to entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs. And he said in on this panel, he said, look, you guys build your business. Don't worry about community. When you're my age and you sell your business, you can worry about your community. And I said to him, you know, I really disagree with what you've said. These are people who have children. Their children need to see them involved some way. Doesn't mean they have to be giving a million dollars a year to charity, but it means they should be involved in their children's schools. It means they should be involved on various boards. It means they should be feeding the poor, whatever it takes. Their children need to see them engaged in the community. That is my attitude. And I felt that elderly philanthropist was dead wrong. And I can't emphasize, and I do this often with families, how it improves the family dynamics, how it improves the individuals. One of my favorite stories, it's not clients, this is something I read about a number of years ago. It's a family that had four children, young children, and one of them had cancer and was dying in the children's hospital with cancer 
over Christmas. The child died of cancer. And the parents reacting to that and trying to pull their family together again had a practice of every Christmas, the whole family moved into the children's hospital or near the children's hospital and provided support to other families, whether that support was just listening or whether it was going out and getting food, doing the laundry. This went on, and this helped that family heal. Now, that wasn't money, Kelly, but it was involvement and community. And in my experience, a family can heal, and most families have some room to heal by engaging in community. I was gaining a lot of takeaways from this conversation, and I'm glad I have a transcript to capture them all. Charles's observation to his client that you've told me what you don't want wealth for. What do you want it for? Well, that was powerful for me. I mean, how many of us have given thought to that? I also thought it was interesting that in working with families of seven and eight generations of wealth, that in his view, not one has been able to be functional around their wealth without community, which made me want to know more about the dysfunction of wealth. When is it actually an impediment to self-actualization and to family harmony? I asked Charles how often he sees future generations crippled by entitlement and robbed of motivation. I run into it, and depending on the age of the person, there are solutions. Mark Rank has written a wonderful book called Chasing the American Dream. The American Dream, by his definition, is self-actualization. And he's studied statistics. He says there's several elements to that. One, it's a chase. It's not a destination. It's a road. And it's the going there rather than the getting there that's important. Two, he says it requires financial security. Without financial security, you can't self-actualize. And three, he says it requires optimism. So look at the classic wealth creator who starts with nothing and ends up with a billion dollars or whatever it is and says to his kids, here, I'm going to give you a lot of money The money was the dream, and I'm giving it to you. He's giving it to them on a silver platter. Or suppose he says, I'm going to take away your money until you do something. So you're going to have no wealth until you do whatever it is, start a business, I don't know what. That deprives the person of financial security. And finally, how does the wealth creator evidence and illustrate where you get optimism. In my experience, you get optimism by helping other people. So the classic wealth creator actually (laughs) prohibits or destroys the capacity to chase the dream in the inheritor. Now, I've gone over that with a number of wealth creators, and I start by saying, was your dream when you started whatever business you started, was your dream to have a lot of money, or was it to self-actualize a vision you had? In Southeast Asia, the vision was frequently bringing Western merchandise to Southeast Asia, recognizing that it was going to be a global world. 
lot of money from that. But their starting point, and I've talked to those wealth creators, wasn't I want a lot of money. Right. They've got a passion, a concept, an idea. They want to drive change or they have a talent for which the world rewards them hugely. It isn't solely about the money, is it? No. And so frequently you have wealth creators who do a movie or a book, something about themselves. And its focus is always on how rich they got. Well, if the only dream is getting rich, there are a lot of people who aren't going to get rich. You can have children who want to teach. You can have children who want to be diplomats. You can have children who want to pursue passions that don't create wealth. So the wealth creator needs to define him or herself in terms of a vision that wasn't about being rich. I've found over many years that most of these almost incorrigible appearing people, they don't wake up every morning saying, I want to make sure to ruin my children and grandchildren. They wake up saying, I want to help my children and grandchildren. They just need someone to talk to them about how to do it. The other issue that's often a barrier between generations, Charles tells me, is the issue of control. There's that old twist on the golden rule. He who holds the gold makes the rule. And some wealth holders try to use money as a means of influencing the behavior of their adult children. Listen for what he had to say about how the next generation can free itself from that tyranny. I can't tell you how often I have young people come into the office and say, oh, wait till you hear how horrible my father or my mother is. And they go on for half an hour with story after story. I let them carry on for a while, and I say, you know, I think it's a little late to find a new parent. (laughs) So you have to deal with what you've got. And then I talk to them, because most often it's about control. Mother or father wants to control my life. And I say, there are two sides to control, two parties. One is the person who wants to control, and the other is the person who is controlled. And I tell the story that I think is true of the son of the wealthiest man in Malaysia, whose only child, the father wanted him to become the businessman, take over the business and the family wealth, and he wasn't the least bit interested. And the father was very controlling. So what did he do? He went out and joined a monastery gave up all wealth, drove his father crazy. His father couldn't control him because he'd taken away the tools for control. I had that conversation recently with a teacher whose family had great wealth and whose father was trying to control her. And I said to her, well, now look, you're a teacher. You've chosen that profession. Why don't you just go out and live on a teacher's salary? And if you do that, the wealth holder won't control you. And she's going to do that. And father, mother, whatever it was, won't be controlling her. That takes great courage. Well, being a teacher takes great courage too. Mm -hmm. Uh, My own daughter said to me, dad, do you think I can afford to be a teacher? I said, sure, you can afford to be a teacher as long as you can live on a teacher's salary. Right. So if you're a parent in that position now and listening to this podcast, what do you want to say to them? I want to say consider control and how it would make or does make you feel. Recognize that your child, if it's going to be a family business, and that's incidentally, Kelly, a really tough issue. 
what is a family business? And do you really want a family business? Some people shouldn't want a family business. But if it's really a family business, don't you have to let your child move on and start making mistakes? Did you make mistakes as a young business owner? The answer is yes. So let your child start making those mistakes. I'm always reminded of the two old foundrymen. One was 90 and one was 92. And the 90-year-old had a 70-year-old son in the business. And I was with my father, who was getting older, and we were visiting with them. And my father said, how's the son doing? And the 92-year-old said, give him a few years and he'll be a pretty good foundryman. Well, that's the attitude of many older business controllers. (laughs) I listened to uh, another podcast that you have done, and you spoke about the fact that the two greatest threats to wealth preservation in your mind are taxes and foolishness. Now, we all understand about taxes, but tell me about foolishness. What did you mean by that? Let me put that in perspective. A few years ago, I think a number of years ago, I was lecturing at Chinese universities on private wealth. And these kids, they were law students, all said, we're going to be private wealth holders someday. So I posed to those classes, what do you think is the greatest threat to private wealth, taxes or foolishness? And they all thought it was taxes. And I said, in my experience, it's foolishness. What is foolishness? The most dangerous foolishness is when a wealth holder decides he or she is going to be an expert in wealth management and isn't the least interested in it and chases all these deals, losing money at each. A client now in his 70s had a father who said, The purpose of wealth is to make a lot of money. He said it over and over again, and he made a lot of money. Well, the kid, who's a wonderful artist, actually, wasn't the least bit interested in making money, but chased deal after deal, thinking he'd find the one deal that made a lot of money for him. That man, over 50 years, has now gone through 80 or $90 million on bad deals. And apparently, Kelly isn't going to stop. As I talked to him yesterday, he's got another deal. He's never had a successful deal. Now, that's foolishness. He would have been much better off hiring a wealth manager who would approach a diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds and maybe some private equity. But he didn't do that. That was foolish. What do you think keeps him chasing those deals, given his track record? His father said... You prove yourself by making a lot of money. Hmm. And he hasn't done it. Another friend of mine had a father who made a whole lot of money and said to him, I made all this money so you could be what you want to be, so you could self-actualize. And the father set up a family office which ran itself, professional managers, and the son started a private school in the urban area, changed the lives of hundreds of students, thousands, I guess, and never made a penny. He lost money on that. But he was leading a very happy, satisfied, self-actualized life. Charles, I know you come by this work, honestly. It was your grandfather that founded Lowenhoffman Chasnoff 
the first U.S. law firm to focus on tax law. What did you personally learn about money from being born into your family? What I learned is that money has to be put in its place. The satisfaction of practicing law with private wealth holders is not in making money and getting the fee. My father used to say law would be a lot more pleasant to practice if we didn't have to collect fees. The satisfaction is watching the difference you can make in someone's life and future. I learned that at a young age. Wealth has to be put in its place. Wealth makes too many people unhappy. And that's what I learned. That's a perfect segue into a few questions I want to ask you about your purpose for wealth and your feelings around money. This rapid fire section that I do at the end of every podcast. If I can ask you then for you, which is the most challenging? Spending your money, investing your money, or giving it away? Satisfying is giving it away. Challenging I guess spending it, figuring out what to spend on, I don't find managing it challenging at all. I hire advisors and let them manage it. Then speaking of spending, what is one thing that you underspend on? Probably underspend on luxuries. I'm learning to spend more on luxuries. And what would be a luxury? A luxury would be a private jet. A luxury would be... It's hard... I have trouble figuring out what luxuries I'd like. What I missed the most during COVID was travel. Mm -hmm. And clearly, private jets would solve that. But I can't, Kelly can't bring myself to that yet. You ask your clients, what is the wealth for? In your case, what is your wealth for? To make sure that I can self-actualize, my wife can self-actualize, my children can self-actualize, and my grandchildren can. And I've actually recently written a letter to my grandchildren talking to them about what's satisfying in life and what I feel that my wife and I have accomplished for them. What's the best piece of financial advice you've been given or you have given to someone else? I don't know that this is the best, but it's my favorite. When I was about 12 years old, my parents took me to Monte Carlo, and my father took me into the casino and said, I want you to see a casino. And he gave me $5, and I put it on some table or another, and I won another $5 back, I mean, francs, whatever it was. And I said, look at this. I won money. And he said, well, that's great. Why don't you get try again? I said, well, why should I try again? I won. He said, no, try again. You may make a whole lot more money. And of course, I lost it. And as we left, I said, Father, why did you make me try again? And he said, I don't want my child to make money on the first entry into a casino. I want my child to know you always lose money when you gamble. I think of that often because so much of what we're encouraged to do is really a gamble financial gamble, and it almost always ends up losing. So there you have it, some sound advice from one of the godfathers of wealth management in North America. What is your wealth for? 
Do you know how to put money in its place? I think my husband and I will be pouring over those questions over the next little while. And I would love it if my advisors would prompt some of those conversations with us as well. I want to thank Charles Lowenhop for being my guest. His book is Freedom from Wealth, and it's available on Amazon. If you want to get in touch with Charles, you can reach him through lowenhoptchaz.com. I've put a link along with his full biography and the titles of his books in the show notes. Lastly, I want to give a shout out to Neil Nisker, co-founder and executive chairman of Our Family Office, who first put me on to Charles's work and his books. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed the conversation, please post a rating or a review. It really helps this podcast get discovered by more people who are interested in rich conversations about wealth. Serious Coin is provided for your general interest only, and nothing we discuss should be taken as investment, tax, legal, or other professional advice. Always talk to a licensed professional before you make any financial decisions.